0: Welcome to the LCAL Low Carb Ancestral Living podcast. I'm your host, Pim Johnson, and each week I'm bringing you new guests who will share their opinions and expertise on different topics related to health and well being. Enjoy! Hi, and welcome to LCAL Low Carb Ancestral Living with Pim Johnson. Today I have a very educated guest with me. Her name is Rowena Field, and she's a physiotherapist and has completed a PhD looking at how different macronutrients nutrient density, removal of antinutrients, nutrients etc., can be used in chronic pain management. So that's what I thought that we would talk about today. She's also the director of STEP, Solutions, Tools and Education for Persistent Health in Australia. And she's here to talk about the impact of low-carbohydrate diets on chronic pain. And I'm also hoping that I will be able to pick a brain a little bit about the placebo effect and perceived pain. So welcome to the show, Rowena. Thanks for having me. I'm keen to have a chat. Awesome. So you've been a physiotherapist for quite some time. How did you, like, all of a sudden develop an interest in diet to the degree that you wanted to go and get a PhD in that?
1: Uh, Well, I guess it's sort of one of those stories where, you know, it's personal experience, isn't it, that gets us interested in in lots of things that we we do? And I, I guess... Um, I was always a chubby teenager and struggled with my weight and, you know, I lived through the 80s and the low-fat aerobics era (laughs) Um, and, you know, always something that I was interested in was diet because I was always trying to manage my own Um, and I guess I I stumbled across um, keto and low-carb diets maybe, I don't know, eight or ten years ago now and I just, it was such a a different approach to what I thought was the correct way of, of eating um, that I got interested in it, and obviously tried it for myself, and worked effectively for, for helping me. And it, um, it intersected with my my other role as a physio, just because I, I also specialised in chronic pain. Again, through personal experience, I had chronic pain, and found that you know the the um, current knowledge around how to manage that. Within my own profession, didn't answer very many questions for me, and so I did a lot of digging in 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 trying to find out well, what was the new research in in chronic pain, and and I found there was lots of interesting intersections with um you know things that they were talking about in the keto low carb space with you know the different mechanisms that are involved in managing you know inflammation and stuff like that which were also the same mechanisms that they were very keen over here in the pain space to talk about as well and what medication could we use to to deal with that and I was sort of in the middle going hang on guys we could you know <laughs> there's some crossover here that we could look at and and that's where I got interested in this whole idea of how how does diet really potentially influence our physiology when we're trying to manage somebody's pain? I thought, well, there's probably got to be lots of research that's already been done out there. So I went and had a look and funnily enough, there's, there wasn't very much at all. And so I just, um, because I, I guess I was at that point in my career and, and time in my life when my kids were sort of growing up and I could be a bit self-indulgent and, and went back to uni and did a PhD looking at that specific
0: topic. Awesome. So can I just ask you, how did you find a PhD? Or did you write a proposal and to someone that you thought might accept it? Or how, how did that how did you go yeah. about that? Yeah, that's what you've got to do. So you've got to, you, you've got to come up with some sort
1: of novel idea. So a PhD is really doing some research in a niche area that, that doesn't have that thing particularly looked at. So when I realised that nobody had looked at low-carbohydrate diets and pain management specifically, I thought, you know, that's something I'm, I'm really interested in. So, yes, you have to write a, a proposal um, and then find a, a supervisor at a uni that wants to take you. So it was a bit of a process going through different unis to try and find somebody that wanted to, you know take a <laughs> hedge of bed on a physio doing dietary yep. um, research. <laughs> so, I, and I, you know, I, I had a few stumbles along the way with, um, you know, there was one university that I, I enrolled at initially to do my PhD. And when they discovered what I really wanted to do, decided that physios shouldn't be talking about diet and promptly told me I had to do a different topic for my <laughs> PhD. So I left there and went to a to Sydney Uni, which is where I did my um, undergrad uh degree as well and found a, a, um, a supervisor there who had done some research in, in uh, around sugar um, and low-carb stuff, so he was already a little bit in that space already and he's a little bit of a cowboy and likes to have some controversial stuff going, so he was prepared to take me on and, and that's, <laughs> that's how I ended up doing a PhD with him.
0: Nice. Well, I'm glad you did and <laughs> that you didn't change the topic because I can imagine a lot of people would be like, yeah, okay, since I'm here, I'll just do that then. And,
1: yeah, and I did think about doing that because they actually offered me a scholarship at the time to do it. And I thought, oh, do I want to give up a scholarship to, you know, I could just do some other topic. And then when I'm finished, go back and research what I wanted to do. And then I thought, yeah, no, nah. <laughs> I just want to, you know, do what I'm interested in. So that's, I guess, a yeah. bit of a luxury when you're older, to you go back and do that when you're an early career, you know, researcher, you're sort of a bit more stuck in what your options might be.
0: Yeah, good on you. I'm proud of you. <laughs> I think it's great that you did that. <laughs> so can you just give us like a definition of what chronic pain is and how and why that appears? Yeah, sure. so topic.
1: chronic pain is something, it's really not well understood and there's a very big difference between acute pain and chronic pain and even a lot of health professionals I think don't really understand the difference between the two. And mostly when you said to say to somebody, you know, what do you think is chronic pain? And they'll say, oh, well, pain that's just been going for a long time. And that is certainly one of the definitions of chronic pain. It needs to have been sort of going for longer than three months or beyond the time when normal healing should have happened. But I think the really big difference between acute and chronic pain that people sort of lose sight of is the fact that with acute pain, there's been some sort of new tissue damage, like you've cut your skin or you've sprained your ankle or you've done something where some sort of tissue in the, the body has been damaged and now it needs to go through a healing process. And that acute pain is a protective mechanism to make you take notice and fix the problem and also allow it to do that healing, um, you know, without being damaged further along the way. Now, the difference with chronic pain is, is that chronic pain is pain that is still going without any new tissue damage. So there was something back at the start that probably triggered or caused the pain initially, but now we're way down the track, beyond the point where you know things should be healed, and yet the person still has pain. And so what we know at that point is that that pain the person's experiencing it's a little bit about the stuff that was heard in the first place in those structures but it's a whole heap more about other things that are going on and other things that are driving that pain experience and so really if we're trying to help somebody with chronic pain it's about looking at the bigger picture and looking at all of the other things that are involved now in that process and that includes physical things it includes metabolic stuff how well you are it includes psychological things what you think is going on experience learning knowledge all sorts of things then come into that story because ultimately what's happening is your brain is still um, when it's trying to decide am i safe or am i not safe is protection required it's continuing to come up with the answer yep protection is still required so let's give you some pain to try and manage that even though there's not really any new tissue damage or any new you know, structural reason why it necessarily needs to be to be going. So, trying to treat somebody with chronic pain is a very different thing to treating somebody with an acute pain problem. And if you tend to try and treat chronic pain like it is acute pro, acute pain, it usually makes a chronic pain problem worse. It ends up driving that problem and making it making it worse. So, we really need to look at them as two separate things.
0: Okay. So, when you started doing your PhD and the research that you did did you only look at a low carb diet or did you have other groups of people doing other diets as well and comparing them or how did you go about this?
1: So, when you do a PhD, you've got to do some um, preparatory work to set the scene for why you're going to do the study that you're going to do. So, part of the process for my um, PhD was going back and having a look at all of the published literature that exists for any sort of dietary intervention that is used for chronic pain. And so, when we go back and actually have a look at um, what's out there, there's <laughs> About 48 studies that were available when I did my, I think this is back in 2019 or 20 when I when I did the, the systematic review, there's about 48 um, different groups that use diet to try and manage a pain problem. And when we looked at the type of diets that get used there, there's all sorts of diets in that mix. There's everything from vegan, vegetarian, Mediterranean, to uh, elimination diets like gluten-free and, and stuff like that. So, when, when you pull all those studies, so that's what we did a meta-analysis, where you take the results of the the ones that can be sort of put together to make like a, a mega study essentially, and try and come up with some more answers. When we when we did that to try and figure out, oh, well, okay, which diet is best for chronic pain out of all of those ones that had been done? And out of all those ones that we did find, there was only one study that was actually using a low carb diet at the time. Um when you look at them it really didn't matter too much which sort of diet you put anybody on as long as you put them on a diet they got some sort of significant pain improvement which is sort of a bit of a head scratcher when you're at the start thinking okay well this is crazy I mean any sort of as long as you put somebody on a diet it's going to help but I think what you're doing when you put somebody on a diet as an intervention strategy for their pain what you're doing essentially is you're cleaning up their diet a little bit. So you're more likely to be, you know, cooking food for yourself and you're less likely to be eating, you know, takeaway and things like that. So it's got probably a little bit more to do with the quality of the diet and maybe improved um, nutrients that are coming in through the diet that are showing that sort of effect. So what we did then was say, okay, well, the diet that we're specifically interested in looking at is a low-carbohydrate diet. And the reason why we're interested in looking at that is because there's all sorts of um, ways in which Um, the nervous system physiology gets affected um, when you change the the carbohydrate fat ratio in in a diet. And so, again, another part of my PhD was then going back and doing a review of the literature looking at, okay, how does a low-carbohydrate diet impact the nervous system? And so there's a lot of preclinical studies, so rats and mice studies and things like that, looking at all of the, trying to flesh out, I guess, all the different mechanisms by which, a low-carbohydrate diet affects the nervous system, and there's all sorts of different things in there, for, and I'm sure your um, listeners have probably heard of a lot of those things, like, you know, it improves mitochondrial function. It's, a you know, an efficient energy source. It um, produces ketones, and those ketones are signalling molecules, um, and those signalling molecules affect the nervous system in a, in a way that helps to um, settle down a, a, an overexcitable uh, nervous system, which is the situation you've got when you've got chronic pain. So if you think about what chronic pain is, it's sensitisation of a nervous system. Um, and if we can use ketones to try and help improve that, then that sort of it gives us some rationale as to why we would use a low-carb diet as opposed to any other sort of dietary intervention that might be out there. And when you look at how um, chronic pain is managed, a lot of the type of medication gets used for chronic pain are um, anti-epileptic and anti-seizure drugs which when you stop to think about it sort of makes sense because what they're trying to do is they're trying to address the sensitization or the sensitivity within the nervous system as well so a seizure that you might see in epilepsy is sort of like right up the end of the spectrum in terms of um you know uh you know excitability of the nervous system but chronic pain is somewhere sort of along that a little bit as well and so we know that chronic pain is improved by taking these medications so Our argument was sort of along the lines: well, you know, we can change people's physiology by changing what they're eating, rather than giving them opioid and other medication to try and do that. So you sort of have to build your story along the way as to why you would choose low carbohydrate um, diets as being the the diet that we did choose for for intervention. So I guess that's a, a long answer to your question, but yeah, we did look to see what other diets were available. We chose the low carbohydrate diet based on the um, evidence of what it would do in the system. And then when we actually ran our um, clinical trial, what we did was we we did a randomized um, trial where we got everybody to do a run-in diet to begin with. And so that run-in diet was three weeks where everybody pulled out the um, ultra-processed food out of the the diet. So we used the NOVA classification system, which is just a way of helping people understand, you know, which foods are ultra-processed. So essentially they just had to pull out all of the chips and lollies and, you know, discretionary foods that aren't great for you. So that's what everybody did to begin with for the first three weeks. Then after that, we randomised them either to continue doing that whole foods healthy diet or to do the same diet, but actually make it low-carb ketogenic as well. Because a lot of the criticism around dietary trials are that, okay, well, yes, you put them on a diet, but you also cleaned up their diet, and you're comparing it to a Western diet. So we wanted to be able to say, okay, well, we've actually cleaned up everybody's diet here so that we can compare apples with apples, essentially, and be able to comment on both just, you know, the the potential pain improvements just from cleaning a diet up as well as the potential improvements from also making that diet um, lower in carbohydrate. And I guess the interesting thing that came out of that research was that both groups did significantly improve their pain outcomes. So I guess one of the, the take-home messages for clinicians is that You know, even if all you can do is to get somebody to remove the ultra, ultra processed food out of their diet and start to eat more whole real food and cook for themselves and that sort of thing. That's at least a great starting point for pain management. Now, there were additional benefits for the ketogenic group. They, their, their numbers in terms of pain improvement was a little bit better, but it wasn't significantly better than the other group. But they did have a lot of other things that they improved significantly on that the other group didn't. So they, they lost a significant amount of weight. Their inflammatory markers on blood testing improved, and their scores around diet, uh, around um, depression and anxiety also improved as well. So there's still reason why you would, you know, try and encourage somebody to take that a little bit further and trial a ketogenic diet as an intervention for their pain, because there's potentially other things that can can improve as well. But that shouldn't stop people just trying to clean up their diet a little bit. If people don't want to go low carb, that's okay. You know, you can still get some benefit from improving your your dietary um, composition or, or the the nutrients and stuff that you're getting in as well.
0: Interesting. So you mentioned that the ketones in, in themselves are doing a lot of things, and I'm wondering, could could you actually? Just clean up your diet a bit and take some sort of exogenous ketones and get the same benefit?
1: I don't know. That would be a really interesting research project, wouldn't it? Because it's, and a lot of the research, I guess, around exogenous ketones in the space of, uh, you know, like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and those sorts of things are showing improvement. And that's in a, a population or a patient population that is really difficult to get them to comprehend and engage in a, you know, a a strict sort of ketogenic diet. So there is potential, I think, for um, exogenous ketones with pain management, but that study certainly hasn't been done at the moment and it would be a really good one to do. Are you going to do it? (laughs) I would like to. Somebody wants to fund it. That would be great. (laughs) That's the one thing about, you know, diet trials and things like that and there's nobody there's no money to be made by anybody in any of this so there's no big farmer or you know anybody that wants to dole out money to to fund that sort of research which it makes it hard because you know when you go back and look at the research it's oh well there's not that many you know trials looking at whether diets actually going to help somebody with chronic pain so it probably doesn't work well that's only just because there's been no money put in you know no money available to do that research it would probably show that there's a really great benefit in doing it but the studies just haven't been done
0: yeah for sure so I'm wondering what other things than um, ketones would be beneficial when you start a low carb diet with relation to chronic pain
1: So, if we think about ketones as a signalling molecule, there's quite a few different things that they do. If we want to sort of get down in the nitty gritty gritty a little bit, we do. They (laughs) act a little bit like a hormone. So, as hormones sort of they circulate, you know, in your bloodstream and they go to target organs and they do different things. So, ketones also do that. Um, So, we sort of we talk about ketogenic diets. Um, you know, when we're in the obesity space or diabetes and things, and we're really thinking about ketones as being the fuel source. And certainly they are a fuel source as well. But it's this signalling side of what they do that is really exciting for for neurological dysfunctions. And so um, if we think about what they do to the actual nervous system, they they impact on the excitability and we've sort of already hinted at this a little bit but if you think about how our nervous system works there's a a dynamic range of how excitable a nerve should be a nerve talking to the next nerve should be and a whole network of nerves should be. Because if they get too excitable, then they fire off all the time when you don't want them to. Or if they're not excitable enough, then there's not enough to be able to make them fire when we need them to. So we're, a lot of people are used to that term homeostasis where everything has to be. There's a, a nice, you know, happy happy level that everything's set out. So our, our temperature and our blood glucose levels and all those sorts of things, there's a nice zone where everything works the best if that's where that that item is sitting at. And the excitability within the nervous system is the same. There's a set level that um, it should sort of sit in to make everything work well. Now, what tends to happen with chronic pain is that something goes a little bit wrong with that level of excitability. So um, we often hear the term like sensitization within the nervous system. So the nervous system gets upregulated or more sensitive than it should be, and it becomes this... um, Uh, you know, that so the nervous system that's looking after the injured body part fires off too easily, giving danger information back to the brain for processing. So there's a an I guess a a problem within the excitability of the the neuronal system as a whole. And what we know that ketones do um, is that they seem to, and and there's lots of different ideas about how they actually do this, and this is where we get the information back from the mouse model studies and things like that. But they seem to um, do something to alter like the GABA to glutamate ratio in the in the brain. So that's the, the neurotransmitters, the balance between the inhibitory and the excitatory one. And it, they do a, there's a few different mechanisms by which it helps to improve that that ratio. That ratio, sorry. Um, and they also seem to improve the, the redox balance. So that's um, improved improve the levels of oxidative stress within the, the nervous system. So there's sort of they buffer that stress a little bit. Um, And they seem to do that because they um, attach onto receptors, I G protein receptors on on the nerve. Um, And they also, there there seems to be some sort of mechanism by which, um, so when ATP gets broken down, so most people know ATP is an energy molecule, and as those phosphates are broken off, that energy is released, and we end up with adenosine down at the the end of that um, cycle. Now, adenosine is also um, something that, Um, Is a a, a signalling molecule and seems to help to regulate um, the the nervous system excitability as well. And we know that that ketones are a um, a uh, more efficient um, fuel system. So you're getting more ATP essentially, which can then break down to adenosine. So there's lots of different reasons as to why the um, the nervous system might be um, or how the nervous system might be influenced by ketones. But I guess the 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 overall explanation is that they seem to be what we call neuromodulatory and neuroprotective. So they do something to help modulate the nervous system back to its its happy level and to protect the nerves and how they function. Um, So that's sort of the first thing that ketones do. The next thing that they do is that they um, can help reduce inflammation because what they do is they block the NLRP3 inflammasome. So it's sort of like the big upstream parent body inflammatory molecule, and there's a whole heap of different sorts of inflammatory cascades that come from this parent molecule, and ketones seem to be able to inhibit that. So it's quite a broad-ranging inflammatory control that the ketones seem to have. Um, we also know that they signal around um, mitochondrial function, so they seem to improve how the mitochondria f- function, and they also seem to increase the numbers of mitochondria present um, in the in the neurons. And we also know that they're. They um, regulate genes, so they're epigenetic regulators. So the, they inhibit their HDAC inhibitors, is the technical term. And they and the genes that they inhibit or the genes that they change again seem to be around um, mitochondrial function and inflammation as well. So that's all sort of, I guess, a bit um, you know fairly <laughs> complex, and and I'm not sure that we all really understand how that that functions. But ketones just seem to do something over that whole system that are beneficial to the nervous system. And I guess the flip side, so we've talked about ketones as well, but the flip side to this whole story is that not only are we producing ketones when we are doing a low-carbohydrate diet, we are also reducing glucose and that's something that sometimes gets forget, forgotten about in this story as well so just due to the fact that this less glucose available in the system even though we're not thinking about you know the ketones being formed you know for energy and stuff like that the fact that there's less glucose means that there's less um, availability for that glucose molecule to attach itself or glycate to proteins. So we're we're fairly happy where we, we hear that, you know, if you've got increased glucose um, in the case of diabetes, it's attaching itself to, you know, like the proteins in the blood and stopping oxygen carrying capacity and that sort of thing but they don't only attach themselves to the proteins in the blood. Glucose will also attach itself to the proteins in your ligaments, your tendons, your cartilage in your joints and the nerves. And whenever um, glucose attaches to a protein molecule, it just affects the way that that protein works. And so we start to see damage in those tissues if you've got somebody that's got high glucose levels. And unfortunately, the poor diabetics tend to be a good example of this. So not only with diabetes do you have the, the obvious problems that that um, you know we hear about, but also they're much more likely to have tendonitis and tendinopathies and things like that because of the damage of the high glucose load in the tendons. They're more likely also to have neuropathies or damage to the nerves for the same reason. So we know that too much glucose floating around in the system is not great for our our soft tissues. So when you go on a low carbohydrate diet, by default you're reducing the amount of sugar excursions that you've got going on in your in your blood, and you're going to improve potentially the quality of those other soft tissues that are really important when it comes to pain management.
0: Oh, you stole my next question, which was about the glycations. <laughs> 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 Excellent. <laughs> Sorry, I preempted that for you. That, that's all right. I got my answer. So that's brilliant. Um, I've also heard you mention somewhere that um, ketones are glucose sparing in the neurons. So that means that there is more glucose available to produce things like glutathione, et cetera, which will yeah. decrease yeah, the oxidative there are some stress. Sideways. Yeah. yeah. Can, can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Again, it's probably a little bit above my technical level, but as you're saying, so <laughs> you're saying. when ketones are present, <laughs> um, there, there are certain pathways that require glucose, and, and we're very comfortable, I think, in the low-carb space of saying, well, you know, we are capable of producing our own glucose when we when we need to. There's certain cells that require it, and there's certain pathways within the nervous system that require it as well. So the the pentose phosphate pathway is one which is you were talking about. So, and a lot of those are um, pathways that produce antioxidants and glutathione and other things like that. So, if we're not using um, glucose for other reasons, if we've got ketones available to be an energy source and things like that, then it does free up um, the available glucose for uh, you know the other necessary pathways that that um, it's required in.
0: Okay, so so basically, we can say that our need for antioxidants re- is reduced when we are on a ketogenic diet.
1: Yeah, I okay. think that's probably probably true.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's um, very interesting as well. I think. Um, are there any other direct effects that you've seen from a keto diet? that directly affects the chronic pain other than what you've already spoken about? Which I is mean, a I lot, guess it's all sort way. of secondary.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think I probably just about covered most of the things. But, you know, there's, there's, there's all those side things that go along with it as well. So we talked about yep. the other... Um, uh, significant findings that we had in the clinical trial being weight loss as being one of them. And so, mm. you know, when we think about the type of people that are coming in, or particularly to see me with chronic pain, so, so we work in a, a specific chronic pain um, program, so we're obviously getting people coming in that have had, you know, long-term chronic pain. And, you know, if, we're, if I'm looking at the people that are coming through the door, I would have to say that, you know, most of them have significant metabolic issues when they're coming as well. I'm not seeing somebody walk through the door who's fit and healthy in that, you know, it looks, the spitting image of health and all they've got is this rip-roaring chronic back pain. No, no, they're they're there and they've got, you know, some d- depression going along there as well and they've put on a little bit of weight and, you know, the, the doctors told them their blood glucose is, is getting up a little bit high and they're pre-diabetic and stuff like that. And when you, when you look at the typical sort of person that... Um, has chronic pain, and again, this was uh, one of the studies that I had to do for my PhD, I didn't mention it. The very first one that I did was a a cross-sectional survey of 50 people with chronic pain just to sort of, you know, find out you know, what's the average chronic pain person like, you know, and what do they think about their diet and whether they actually need to do anything about it. And, you know, the funny thing was that, you know, most people reported that their diet was great. (laughs) But when I actually assessed their diet, it was really quite poor. And the average BMI was over 30. And there was an average of three comorbidities and and that matches up very nicely with the i'm not sure if there's um what we call the epoch data so there's uh, electronic data that's kept by all of the um the chronic pain management um, centers throughout australia and new zealand and they keep all sorts of statistics on this sort of thing and and the the prevalence of comorbidities in people with chronic pain i think three is the is the average between our two countries so you know when we're looking at what our diets can do from a pain management perspective, some of that improvement is going to come just by improving people's metabolic status and losing some weight as well. Because the the adipose tissue that we carry excess around our belly, that adipose t- tissue um, it excretes inflammatory cytokines. So that's adding to the inflammatory load that that we've got. And so what have we already said that ketones are great at doing? They're great at blocking inflammatory pathways. So if we're using ketones to block the inflammation a bit and we're losing a little bit of weight to stop producing that inflammatory response in the first place, then it's sort of a win-win when it comes to, to pain. So there's lots of side benefits when, when you look at the person as a whole by putting them on a low-carbohydrate diet. So losing weight, is just one of them. I think the, the mental aspects of it are really important as well, too. And that's we see a lot of, of that, that um, it can really improve people's mood and perception of what's going on. Because a lot of people, you know, by the time you've got a, a, a established chronic pain problem, it's very rare you see anybody that's not also clinically depressed because it is it's really it's it's hard being in chronic pain all the time, and it sort of feels like you're in this helpless situation and you've tried everything everything and nothing seems to help and everything seems to make you worse and so it it does tend to be a big black psychological hole that you find yourself in so um You know, so my my work that I do, I work with a psychologist and that's really important because the the headspace side of things is really important. But if we can help people's headspace by their diet as well, then that's just another lever that we can pull in pain management that just helps the, the whole person and not just the structure that was the thing that, you know, everybody's looking at in the first place.
0: Yeah, and I think that's so interesting. So do you think that if someone is depressed and you can only treat their depression, would their pain levels go down just doing that and nothing else?
1: There's probably a good chance that that would be the case. Yeah, because all those things are inextricably linked together, you know. And and I think sometimes we like to put people in boxes and you know you just want you have a specialist for this thing and a specialist for that thing and you forget to stand back and have a look and say, Okay, well this you know, this person is a whole person and what's going on inside their head dictates what's going on in their body as well. And and, and depression and anxiety and mood disorders are so commonly linked with chronic pain and they they're, you know, a two-way street. They they, they feed off each other almost. And so, you know, if you've got somebody where Um, You know, the the doctors have tried everything from a structural perspective and none of that helps their pain, but they've forgotten to look at the person's mental um, state. Well, that's really overlooking a big, you know, um, option of trying to help somebody because if you can improve that and improve their outlook, then they sort of feel like doing a little bit more and they get a little bit more active. And so you can get, you know... (laughs) A bit of um, wind on from that, you know, from a, a different angle for for the pain management, and so that's why you know when you're looking at pain management as a whole, we're trying to think of like how many different options and what levers can we pull in this story. It's not just about pushing on a joint or stretching a joint. That's the thing that was the problem in the first place. It's about having a look at well, how can we help them from a psychological perspective? How can we help them from a metabolic perspective? How can we um, you know educate them so they actually understand what's going on, how they've gotten into a chronic pain problem in the first place because that's one of the the biggest things when you look at the new research in pain neuroscience is that if if the person doesn't understand what's actually going on in their body and how they've ended up with a chronic pain problem in the first place then that's feeding into the chronic pain cycle whereas if all you do is educate them to understand what's going on and their brain can sort of go oh okay that makes sense you shift the balance of what's going on in how their brain is calculating the information that's, that's um, being presented to it. And that in and of itself can help with pain management. So there's so many you know different facets of pain management that we need to consider when we're trying to be holistic in helping somebody that's got a chronic pain problem.
0: But do you use things like... Um I can't remember, is it called mirror box therapy or something like that that you usually use with stroke patients or other people that have like lost their limbs and have phantom pains and that sort of stuff? Yeah, yeah, so
1: I do a bit of mirror box and those sorts of things because when we think about um, somebody that's got chronic pain, so pain is this protective device that your brain, um, so it's a a process within the brain that gives you an experience to make you do something. And that processing is an important part of the story of what's going on. So if we can change that processing because – Up until this point in somebody's chronic pain story, their brain has been continuing to come up with the conclusion that things aren't great, things aren't safe, and so protection is required, and pain is one of the appropriate protective mechanisms. So what we have to do is we have to try and change that calculation within the brain to get it to come up with a different answer, to say okay it's not quite as bad as what i thought it was going to be because that then helps us to then downregulate that excitability within the nervous system and so if we can trick the brain do whatever we can to get it to come up with a different answer <laughs> that's what that's what we will do and so mirror boxes is where that sort of fits into the story so if you've got somebody that's you know say got chronic pain In one hand, if you cover it up with a mirror box and get them doing something with the opposite hand to their eyes, what they're seeing is it looks like both hands doing the work, but the injured hand is not actually doing anything. So it's not actually sending any danger information potentially back to the brain. And it's almost like your brain goes, oh, hang on that's different that's not how it was maybe it's not quite as bad as what i thought thought it was in the first place so there's a lot around mirror that's box stupid. and greater motor imagery and those sorts of things to try and change that processing pattern within the brain because if we're looking at you know, the problem of chronic pain being a, – it's a, two, a two-part problem. It's a little bit about the structures and stuff that were hurt in the first place, and they can always do with a bit of spit and polish, you know. They can always do with a bit of stretching and strengthening and things like that. But it's far more about the problem that now resides in the nervous system. And that nervous system that's now sensitised that we've been talking about – That problem exists both in the the nerves that come out to that body part, in the processing that happens in the spinal cord, and also the processing that happens in the brain. So when we're trying to change nervous system processing, we're sort of thinking about all those different places. And that's where you'll get, you know, mirror box therapy coming into it. There's a lot coming out with um, virtual reality goggles and things like that. So trying to give... Um, different visual input um, that's disparate with what's actually going on in the body at, at the time. So the, there's a lot of ways that you're trying to essentially get the, the, the eyes to lie to the brain about what's going on and get it to come up with a different answer. So there's lots of cool, cool research out there around around that sort of stuff. And um, there's a, a really great TED talk by Professor Laura Mosley. It's a little bit old now it's probably 10 years old or something now but he's a really he's a really great larrikin and a good storyteller but he talks about a lot of the experiments and things around pain science and trying to work out well what does the brain actually use to come up with this answer about am i safe or am i not safe and how can we trick it <laughs> essentially
0: so it's a it's a good ted talk i think it's, it's called why things hurt okay see so if we can find that link as well so is there a way of doing this if someone has you know neck pain or back pain or something like that because you can't really see that in a mirror is there a way of tricking the yeah, brain really spinal problems yeah,
1: yeah. no <laughs> not in the same way that you can use it for peripheral joints and things like that there has been some research um using mirrors for spinal injuries where they've got them standing up oh, held up in a harness and got the um, they've actually put a screen in front of them with somebody else's legs walking, so their eyes are seeing their legs actually walking <laughs> and things like that. So there's all sorts of cool stuff out there. But no, mirrors are a bit harder to use for spinal things, although I did listen to a TED Talk the other day, um, and I'm just trying to remember what the lady's name was. Well, she's she's quite famous. She's got one of the most popular TED Talks on I'll have to. I'll find her name and and I'll give you the link so that you can put down. She was interviewed by Dr. Chatterjee not that long ago, Um, and she she had it was called the high um, the five high five rule that she used in the morning, and that was giving yourself like a high five in the mirror, and actually getting that physical contact with the with the mirror and the. The tactile response, because normally, you know, if you're um in a team situation and you're giving your mates a high five and you get that that um sensation there's there's certain cognitions and stuff that are related to that experience. And so looking in the mirror and seeing yourself, giving yourself a high five, it was like you know, committing to, you know, I've got this today, I'm gonna do whatever the things were that you were going to change. But I thought that's sort of interesting. You can almost use mirror boxing in that same sort of way with chronic pain, like mm-hmm. giving yourself a high five in the mirror in the morning, saying, oh, I'm committed to, you know, doing the stuff that I need. Need to do today to try and help wind down that nervous system. So I usually, you know, give that example to my, my spinal people and they sort of look at me a bit funny about whether they're going to high-five themselves in the mirror in the morning or not. But, you know, there, there's lots of ways that I guess we can try and, and change, you know, that that visual input of, of what our brain is being told by our our eyes because it it's such an important um mechanism like that mirror neuron idea and and a lot of the therapy we we do when we're trying to get somebody to you know get back into an activity that they couldn't do we've realized that if you if you watch somebody doing that same activity even though you're not physically doing it yourself the motor the patterning that turns on in your brain is almost identical to what it would be as if you were actually doing the task, but just not to the, the same extent. So if you've got a hyper-excitable neurotag, which is the, the term that we use for it, so every time you, like, I don't know, for example, you're going to bend down and touch your toes and you can't do it because your back pain so bad and, and thinking about, you know, trying to bend down and touch your toes would, you know, you know make you your balk, then... If we get you watching somebody else mindfully bending over and touching their toes, what your brain is doing because our brains like to try and make sense of our world around us and so to do that it's almost like it projects us into the image. So it puts you into the into the place of the person that is doing the bending forward and it gives that circuitry a little bit of a trial run to help your brain help you understand what it is that they are doing. So if we've got something that you can't do yourself, if we can get you watching somebody else doing it and getting you to use some of that circuitry, but not to the same extent that's going to set off that hyper excitable um, neurotag all the time, then we can start to desensitize it in a way that moves you back towards being able to do that task. And then getting you to mindfully imagine doing it yourself and running it through in your own mind, imagining that you're bending forward and touching your toes and it feels great and your back's not stiff at all and you feel like you did when you were, you know, 18 then that's also using that same circuitry. And it's sort of, it's stuff that, you know, coaches have been using forever. You know, if you think about the guy that's gonna go and jump over the high jump at the Olympics, he doesn't just like wander out and then just run and jump over the, the high jump. He gets in his spot and you can see him tracking that action through in his head a few times before he actually goes and does it. And what he's doing is he's giving that circuitry a trial run successfully before he physically attempts to do it. So it's increasing his chance of success because it's not a surprise to the brain. it's already. Seen it a couple of times as a warm up before he goes to do it. And so we're sort of doing the same thing with with things that people can't do because of their their pain. We take the activity that they want to get to somewhere down the track and we unpack it back into smaller parts and get them practicing parts which um, in, in a way that the brain's going, yeah, I'm okay with that, that's not so bad, that's not so bad. And then you sort of sneak back in underneath the radar, back towards the thing that they want to be able to do. And that way you're preparing your brain to be ready to do some of that stuff that at the moment, if you thought about doing it, it just wants to set off that pain response all the time, that learned pain pain reaction. So I guess it's a different way of approaching how you're doing things when you do have chronic pain, because we tend to do things the other way. We tend to sort of throw ourselves in the deep end and then fail. You know, we decide, okay, yeah, my back's really bad. I'm just going to go down the gym and I'm going to, you know, do a whole gym exercises to try and get better. And you're starting to just makes sure you worse. And you walk away and you go, yeah, and your brain's going, yes, yeah, so I told you so. That was a dumb idea. Next time you go to do that, I'm going to remind you. <laughs> We're going to use that as a bit of evidence as to why that was a dumb thing to do. So you've got to change the narrative about how you're doing things to get your brain to come up with a different answer, and whether you're doing that through how you're doing your movement, or you're doing some trickery with the, you know mirror boxes and eyes and things like that. There's all sorts of ways that that we can sort of do that now. But I guess it's you probably need a health professional to help you do some of that stuff. Sometimes it's not not stuff that's necessarily you know the natural way
0: that you would do things. That's so cool. So, what sort of things can people get help with if they come to your clinic? They basically hit me like like I have
1: for the last little while. But I guess that's, you know, what we do with people. So the psychologist and myself, we see people together and it's it's very much sitting down and and hearing people's individual pain stories because the context around their stories and what's happened for them is the big determiner of, of why their brain has decided that this is a problem and why ongoing pain is an appropriate protective device. And usually there's all sorts of things in people's stories, you know, whether it was, you know, doctors back at the start told them they'd never get better, better and their scan showed, you know, something terrible on it and every time they try and do something, you know, it just gets worse and so they've given up. So there's all sorts of things around their pain story that then become part of the evidence that the brain pulls out subconsciously all the time to try and weigh up and decide, am I okay or am I not okay? So it really does, I guess... Um, help if you've got somebody you know a professional that you can sit down with and, and work through some of that stuff and 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 I guess also get some education around well how does my nervous system work and why is it sensitive and how did it get that way and how am I going to do something different because what I'm currently doing is continuing to make that system sensitized you've got to throw something different at it essentially so sometimes it does require you know somebody sort of helping you through that but um, I guess there's, there are resources out there. So, Lauren Mosey that I spoke about before with the TED talk, he's got a book out called "Explain Pain," which is something that a lot of people have used to go through and read to try and help understand and, and put it um, put it together for themselves. And he's got a thing called they call it the Protectometer, I think, and it's sort of like they call it DIMs and SIMs. So it's danger in me and safety in me, and it's starting to try and work out your own story and all the reasons of what, you know what's going on for you that has caused this ongoing. Um, you know, protective response. So there are some resources out there that you can sort of do on your own if you're interested. But I guess finding a clinician that's sort of up to speed with the latest neuroscience is the easiest way to get, you know, help for that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, so there, are, there, are there any people that you would say, no, sorry, we can't help you? You're beyond what we can do here.
1: <laughs> that would be really dismal, wouldn't it? No, I don't think so because, you know, our, our system our system adapts to to what you throw at it and so if you've got a really sensitized nervous system we just have to figure out a different way of of giving it information and changing the narrative for, for your brain. So, you know, we, we don't ever say to people, oh, we're going to 100% get rid of your pain and we'll have you back, you know, running in the Olympics. <laughs> Definitely not. But if you've got somebody that's in just terrible chronic pain all the time, if we can at least get them back to less pain that's intermittent and let them get back and do some of the things that they want to be doing, even though they might still have some intermittent pain, if they're back engaged in doing some of the hobbies and things that they enjoy, then their quality, of life is a whole heap better and I think you know that is a realistic expectation for for most people from pain management you know the the old school of pain management you know you, you, we used to have programs and you probably had the same sort of thing over in, in New Zealand where you know they'd send you to as an inpatient into one of the big hospitals for two weeks and you'd see the you know the pain specialist and you know, you'd see everybody and they would give you new medication and all the rest of it and I guess the pervading ideology behind those programs was, yeah, sorry, we've done everything we can for you. You've seen everybody. You've had every intervention under the sun. We can't change your pain, so let's just teach you how to live with it. And that's not what the new neuroscience is saying. So if we really look at what the research says now, it shows us that, no, you've got a nervous system that has adapted to become more and more sensitive based on the context of what's been going on for you. And it's a very realistic outcome to expect that we can move that away from being so sensitive and get it less sensitive and and thus your pain experience be less as well. So I guess it, it would be important to find, uh, you know, people or you know, practitioners that are very much versed in the new approach to doing things rather than the old school <laughs> way of thinking because it's, it's not good enough just to tell people, oh, you just have to learn to live with it. That's not what pain management should be anymore. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Do you only see patients in the clinic or do you work with people online as well?
1: No, we, do, we do telehealth as well. So we've got a clinic in Nowra, which is on the south coast of New South Wales, a couple of hours below Sydney. Um, but we do do telehealth, but I think we're probably limited to Australia. I presume, I don't know that we yeah. see people
0: outside yeah. of Australia. Yeah. Okay, that's good to know. So. If people want to check you out, if they want to get in contact with you, where can they find you? Um, So,
1: well, they can have a look at our website, which we don't update very often, but we have one, which is just steps. So step.com.au, so solutions, tools, and education for persistent pain um i do have a twitter account but i'm real i'm really really bad at social media so i just, <laughs> i don't put anything on there so that would be really boring if you follow me because I, I won't say anything <laughs> yeah. very exciting unfortunately but we're happy for people to email us through our website if people want more information okay awesome
0: thank you so much for coming here today thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and everything that you've learned uh, along this phd journey and also in your clinic obviously because um chronic pain is something that I think most people as they age just live with and it might not yeah. be necessary
1: and they don't necessarily need to that's right it
0: can be improved yeah. yeah so thank you so much my pleasure it's been lovely chatting with you Pim. thank you Thanks for listening to the El podcast. If you like the show and you want to support the show, you can do so by sharing it with anyone who you think may benefit from listening to it. Or if you're so inclined, you can make a donation over at PayPal or at Patreon, and you will find the links in the description. Have an awesome day.